let's be real. Lawsuits are no fun, but with Paulson and Nace, at least they are a little easier. With two DC-born partners, Paulson and Nace will fight for you the way only a Washingtonian could. Paulson and Nace handles medical malpractice, wrongful death, and other complex injury cases involving negligence. So if you have been hurt or lost a loved one because of someone else's mistake or negligence, call Paulson and Nace for a no-obligation consultation. Visit www.paulsonandnace.com or call 202-463-1999. Today on CityCast DC, we are talking about a fight at a Wawa, or at least how that fight was covered and what it says about where DC's at right now. I'm here with my CityCast colleagues, Priyanka Tilbe and Kayla Cote-Stimmerman. Plus, we will chat through the state of statehood and a great big museum reopening. Today is Friday, October 20th. I'm Michael Schaefer, and here's what DC is talking about. Hey, Priyanka. Hey. And hey, Kayla. Good morning. All right. So, Priyanka, I feel like I'm running like the like Palookaville city cast uh, <laughs> when I say this. But tell us about the fight at the convenience store. Yeah, I know, right? This story initially blew my mind. And then as it updated, I was further confused. So there was this big fight, apparently, at the Wawa in Tenley Town in Northwest Washington. I just want to read the first line of the Washington Post article that came out right after the fight. It said, a sprawling fight and public disturbance at a Wawa in Northwest Washington prompted police to disperse a crowd of as many as 300 juveniles Friday night. So that was on Friday the 13th, um, you know, to add some more allure wow. to the story. But when you hear that, you picture something pretty insane, you know, like they didn't say that the fight was 300 people, but a crowd of 300 juveniles like associated with the sprawling fight that creates a picture can i jump in too because yeah. like that night uh it's like i my neighborhood my kid hangs around <laughs> up there and we see like on twitter huge fights and it was like in an independent reporter pushed it out for this way before the post and like the dc police union which is politically uh, controversial, controversial uh, <laughs> outfit and also one that has uh, every incentive to to play up the notion that DC's in a lawlessness stage. Right. So they're pushing this down. We're asking like our kid, like, hey, do your friends know anything about this? What's happening? And they're like, what are you talking about? Yeah. And, and that is the appropriate reaction, because then a few days later, the police revised their report. Instead of 300 juveniles, they say it's been 50 people that they had to disperse. Fewer than 10 were involved in the actual fight. Um, and they said that their initial crowd estimate of 300 was just preliminary. The detectives were investigating. And since then, they've discovered it was way smaller after conducting interviews and reviewing surveillance videos. I'm just like, how do you get a fight of 10 confused with a crowd of 300, even a crowd of 50 watching the fight of 10 people, how do you get that confused with a crowd of 300? Those are huge, huge differences. I'm like so baffled by this. Like 300 people seems like an all out battle. Like 10 people is a scuffle. I, I'm just confused how somebody can look at that and get confused about that. This is really where we're at right now. We're in a time when like there is legitimately like 
a big and scary to a lot of people uptick in crime and carjacking and assaults. And it coincides with this like sort of collapse of truth and of legit decline in the amount of resources going into like the most like meat and potatoes type of local reporting. And, uh, you know, obviously social media and ways of like putting out stories without vetting and so on. So it, it makes for like a perfect environment for like a story that confirms everybody's preconceived notion about chaos to make its way out there. I'll just point out like I live near there. Like it's right by the entry of the Townley Town Metro. There's always 300 people nearby, no matter what's going on. Yeah, actually, the, the Fox 5 report that I saw did talk about that, too. They were they did a report when the number got brought down to 50. They did it on scene where they were like, as you can see, there are dozens of people around me right now. There are always dozens of people right here. That wall was right next to the metro. Like there's a high school right there. So it's always a busy area. And maybe that played into the police's erroneous reporting. But I feel like to your point, Mike, in a climate like this where we're all pretty on high alert about crime, they should maybe not give the number out there unless they're sure. Those preliminary numbers maybe shouldn't be reported. But it did also make me feel better because you also mentioned the concerns about trust in the media, trust in the police, and the fact that this kind of embarrassing update had to be made, but they did do it, made me feel a little bit better at least, that, that they were upfront about the fact that they were so wrong. Wait, I don't know if you looked, and I did not, um... The union, the FOP, which had been one of the social media handles that had alerted us to this 300-person fight, did they correct? No, Mike. I'm looking at their Twitter right now, and they did not. They had tweeted out the first police report about the 300 juveniles involved in a street brawl, but they have not tweeted out the updated police report that says 50. So, yeah, but I'm not surprised. Mike, you mentioned, you know, it's kind of in the interest of the police union to make these things seem bigger than they are, right? And and to an extent, I think a lot of, you know, reporting and journalism can tend, lend, like, lean towards the clickbaity side of these things. And it's tempting to report on, like, massive fights and lots of crime and the worst crime in years. And while it is true, like... How much does that add fuel to the fire and make it sort of cyclical in a way? I don't think that reporting about, if you're asking, saying that just reporting about crime, like, uh, lead to more crime. You don't think so? You don't think it, like, makes it feel like you're in a wild west and, like, you know, what's just another, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, like, I, I tend to think, like, we've also had, like, this sort of simultaneously a lot of denial about the the uptick in violence from people, from elected officials, from so on. And, and, and it's all kind of well-motivated in the sense that they've got Congress trying to take away their uh, autonomy. They've got a lot of kind of demagogue stuff going on. But there, I get a sense that, you know, on a, almost sort of on an emotional level, a lot of the leadership of the city has not really sort of acknowledged the pain of a lot of people, a lot of regular citizens are feeling around this. And that, too contributes to this like erosion of trust and to an environment where like anyone's going to believe anything like rising crime creates like a corrosive thing in a political culture and the corrosion goes in all kinds of different directions and that's sort of where we're at yeah i would agree with that 
On a slightly lighter note, one other thing in the article that I thought was interesting was that they called this incident a disorderly affray. So A-F-F-R-A-Y. That's like the word that they use, which is a word I'd never heard. And so it was kind of interesting to learn a new word in the context of this bizarre story. Wait, I didn't understand. I saw that word too, and I was fascinated with it, but I didn't understand exactly what it meant. So like they just, they define it as like a fight with the consent of more than two people. And does that mean like, hey, Priyanka, like, let's meet tomorrow at eight at Wawa and fight? It's a duel. Or does that just mean like a fight, which is like where like it's not like one person cold cocking another? Do you do you know? Do, do, do they define it? I would assume the latter. OK. Um, I, the, I, the definition you said is the only definition I've seen. I suppose it could be like old school, like movie type fight where they're like, see you at 8 p.m. at the corner of Wawa and like, we'll settled is there. I really hope that's what happens. Bring your friends. A Greece type fight. So I suppose it could mean that, but I, I imagined more like it's two people both engaged in the actual fight as opposed to, like you said, one person just coming and hitting someone behind the head. But yeah, it's just, you know, the more you know. It's time to get dressed up, DC. So Others Might Eat is having its Young Professionals Network Spring Soiree that's to help raise funds for homelessness in DC. The gala is on the evening of May 17th at the National Museum of Women in the Arts. There will be live music from DJ Heat from the Washington Wizards, photo booths, food, and even a special appearance by a former actor from Pretty Little Liars. Wow. There will also be a canned food drive, so be sure to bring a few cans to support Sum's Food Pantry. Grab tickets before they're gone at sum.org slash spring soiree. That's S-O-M-E dot O-R-G slash spring soiree. See you there. When was the last time you went to the theater? Well, we have a new show for you to check out. The Gala Theater in Columbia Heights is showing the political musical comedy Museum in the Closet, Avida's Return, which follows Argentine icon Eva Perón to the afterlife as her preserved corpse ignites political scandals, clandestine affairs, and mysterious murders. The show is full of samba, reggae, and tango that will have you tapping your feet nonstop. The show is in Spanish with English surtitles and will run from May 9th through June 9th. Get your tickets now at galatheater.org or call 202-234-7174. All right, so there was a report in Washington City paper from Alex Coma, friend of CityCast, about the uh, recent financial troubles of DC Vote, which is one of the city's big advocacy groups for representation in Congress and, uh, by extension, statehood. And, you know, it's not like either that surprising or that big because this, this was a, a fairly small organization to start with. So it laid off, I think, one of three remaining people. But it is also sort of an indication that this notion that DC might actually attain statehood, which was kind of a loose in the land as the Democrats pondered retaking the whole government in 2020, and which had kind of changed in tone because it, you know, it was now seen as like a national democratic party thing rather than a 
redressing of like historic racialized injustice thing. But that moment has kind of come and, and gone and we're, we're now in a much more complicated moment of statehood. Yeah. I mean, you mentioned that they laid off one out of three full-time employees, which, yeah, so that seems small, like a small organization. But this is kind of the tail end of a decline. Like they had 11 employees at their peak in 2015 and then that started to fall and now we're down to three. And so, I don't know, that's in less than a decade, it's fallen from 11 employees to two, that's pretty right. bad. And I think this was like an organization that there's a bunch of state organizations. This was one with which had a lot of business and support, like establishment-y mm. support, or at least within the, the local context. As opposed to like the activist vibe that the statehood movement has now. Yeah. You know, I'm sure there's like, it's all like the narcissism of small differences and stuff. But we've come to a point where like fights about home rule and autonomy are like more complicated. The standard fight of 10 years ago or more was like, DC wants to legalize needle exchange or medical marijuana or something, which kind of everybody, which was had very widespread support. And these like social conservatives on the Hill who are playing to their home districts are trying to get in the way of it. And they seem like bullies and it seems unfair. The more recent congressional meddling has been about things that were actually like very like divisive, even in D.C., the criminal code rewrite, things like that, where you know Bowser had vetoed it. The council had overridden her. For those of us who believe in democracy, like that's how it's supposed to work and it's fine. But it was not like the statehood issue was like grabbing on to like a 95 percent popularity issue that was only being blocked by obstructionists. So it's inherently more shades of gray moment in statehood. There's D.C. also had been for, I don't know, 20, 30 years, a place with like big budget surpluses and like like all the statistics were going in good directions. And, you know, this was seen as a, well, you know, a much better governed place than a lot of states of the country. And again, we're the budget's tougher, not just in D.C., but everywhere. And the things like crime that we were talking about are it, it just it seems like less of a golden age in, in local government, which makes the sell of statehood harder, both because we're, you know, we're less of a golden child and also because it's like, you know, got bigger things to more immediate things to worry about. That's just sort of where we're at right now. I guess I'm curious, like where DC Vote has historically gotten most of their funding from and like, because it does seem like there's excitement among DC residents about DC statehood still, right? Especially in these last, in this last year, there's been a lot of, there's been a lot of controversy over it. And could they not sort of do a grassroots funding call from that sort of populace? Would that not work? Is that not how they're funded? By reputation, it was a more like the board has a, a number of business people, lobbyists, and in, in addition to activists. I mean, look, there's a bunch of money in Washington, and we're in a moment that's quite different where a lot of the people most energetic about local government and home rule are actually people with a certain amount of disposable income. You know, it had used to be seen as like a cause for people who are left out. And now, you know, there's a lot of rich people who've moved here and are like, wait a minute, I can't vote. This is outrageous. So of course, there's people who would write a check. But, you know, I think one of the things you do when you are soliciting people to write checks is like, well, what good will it accomplish in the immediate term? And it's just more of a bummer to say what we're going to do is stop some terrible crap that's coming down the pike 
rather than to say, hey, we're going to achieve an awesome thing that has heretofore not been achieved. I'm not a marketing person, but I imagine the sales pitch is, is tougher. Yeah. I also wonder if like it's kind of a signal that the sort of movement for D.C. statehood is changing away from something that's more formal and organized into something that's sort of social media based and ad hoc and based on events. People don't have as much interest in doing it full time, you know, if you can just tweet about it. The movement for D.C. statehood in every single other aspect of American enough, life, yeah. I think. <laughs> Hey, DC. One of the reasons hosting this show is so important to me is this statistic from the U.S. Surgeon General. Ready for it? The percentage of Americans who report feeling very attached to their community is only 16%. Now, there's a lot of ways to look at that number, which, by the way, is pre-pandemic data. But here's how I'm thinking about it. CityCast DC is something that we're building to make it easier for you to feel attached to this community. I don't want anyone to feel lonely or bored here in DC. I want you to know how you can help make this city more fun and more livable, and where all the good local stuff is at. And if you think we're doing a good job, I'm asking if you'll become a member of CityCast DC today at membership.citycast.fm. You'll get exclusive perks like ad-free listening, event invites, and members-only guides. But most of all, you'll be part of a project dedicated to making the number of DC residents who feel attached to this community a heck of a lot higher than 16%. See you over at membership.citycast.fm, and thank you. All right, so Kayla, you went this week, on a happier note, to a big museum reopening. Yeah, so the National Museum of Women in the Arts is going to reopen this Saturday. They're opening to the public. They have... It's going to be free this weekend. However, all the tickets for that is sold out. However, they are taking some walk-ins starting at noon. But it's really an incredible renovation. They reopened after two over two years and a $70 million renovation job. And the improvement is drastic. Like, I remember going before the renovation and... It was great. I'm not going to lie. I feel like I mostly went because I wanted to support the museum and I liked the idea of the museum, but I was it was never my favorite museum in D.C. by any means. But after this trip, I've got to say I was thoroughly impressed. I will definitely go back. I think it's $13 for D.C. residents. I feel like that's a steal. You can go. It'll probably take two or three hours to walk through the museum. It feels like everything is new. I think over 40% of the pieces on display are being displayed for the first time. Uh, and a lot of it is really big scale, like these huge sculptures, really big pieces that are like dangling from the ceiling or flowing over walls. And it's very fun as wow. to like interact with and walk around. It's like so hard not to touch it, but it, you know, obviously don't do that, <laughs> but it feels like you should. But yeah, I highly recommend you guys check it out. So I think, you know, a lot of us in D.C. are we're so spoiled by the Smithsonian that, the, you know, you said it's a steal for 13 bucks. But like that feels like a ripoff because <laughs> free is a steal. Yeah, that's fair. <laughs> but I'm curious, you know, this museum was established to, uh, obviously to highlight work of women artists who were often underappreciated in like big establishment organizations. Is there like a, any orientation to the collection besides the, the gender of the artists? Is it, is it all Americans? Is it more modern or, or, or does it have like a time period? It's international. So there's like 
almost like 100 artists that are represented at the museum. It's become more political, I would say. I think previously they took a very non-political stance. They said they were a platform for women artists, right? But they never took any sort of activist stance, right? And it seems like now they're really leaning into that side of things. Um, They say they want to be, you know, both a platform and a megaphone. Most, a lot of the pieces, if not most of the pieces, are political statements of some kind. So how did they marry, like, their old artwork, which was a little bit more classical pieces, traditional portraits and things, with this new, like, racial justice protest sculptures and just more politically minded pieces that they have? Like, are they sequestered in different rooms? Like, or are they side by side? And if so, how do they make that work? Yeah. So one of the exhibits that's really interesting is their main collection, which they're calling Remix the Collection, which takes up an entire floor, is exactly that. It's sort of these old school style sort of portraits that you might imagine that are like done by like, you know, famous women painters in the 15th century, right side by side with like these amazing sculptures that are like, maybe they're like dyed the same color, but they're political protest sculptures, right? Like sometimes it's designed where it's grouped by color. Like there's a couple of color themed rooms, which I found really interesting. They're separated by like material that they use uh, or maybe like a broader theme, like whether it's like homemaking or like ceramics. The themes are very interesting. They're sort of grouped in a way that you wouldn't expect, which I think actually makes it a lot more interesting to go through because they are juxtaposed and you can kind of see how those pieces converse with each other in a way that you really don't see in many museums. The other exhibit I would really recommend is their inaugural exhibit, which is called The Sky's the Limit. And that's where I was talking about a lot of those giant sculptures are located. And you can really just spend some time walking around and walking through those. Uh, I think that alone is kind of worth it if you're just going to see one thing. This sounds like a real transformation. I'm excited to go check it out. I know that it's obviously a lot more money than most of the museums in D.C. But if you're a resident, it's $3 less. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Wait, I I hate to be the the Philistine here. Don't do it. But um, is there like a cool cafe or place to eat Um, inside? You know, I don't know. I didn't go. They do have a lot of new (laughs) fun things. They have like a new theater. They have new bathrooms. I was very excited about that. Very pretty. (laughs) Everything's like ADA accessible now. I'm sure there is a cafe. I don't think it was open when I went, but you should definitely go and report back Mm. on that because I am all about the museum food. It seems like they would have something very classy. But also it's right across the street from McDonald's. So you could also go there. It is. That's true. Yeah. A classic combo. (laughs) Red hot. Uh, All right, Priyanka, Kayla, awesome to hang out with you guys. Thanks, Mike. Yeah. Thanks for having us. And that is all for today here on CityCast DC. Our lead producer is Priyanka Tilvey. Our producer is Julia Karen. Our newsletter writer is Kayla Cote-Stemmerman. Our production assistant is Susanna Brown. And our hosts are Bridget Todd and me, Michael Schaefer from Politico. Music is by Alex Roldan. If you enjoyed the show, why don't you schedule an affray and fight someone who doesn't like it? We'll be back Monday morning with more news from around the city. Bye. Bye.